It's 525 B.C., just outside the gates of Pelusium, a prosperous Egyptian city on the eastern Nile Delta, and two imposing armies are preparing for battle. After years of conflict and bitter insults, two rival monarchs, Pharaoh Samtik of Egypt and King Cambyses of Persia, are finally going to war. This is the first time the armies have met, and this crucial battle will come to define the next few centuries of ancient Egyptian history. Spears held high, backed by expert archers, the Egyptian soldiers march forward. Then, suddenly, they stop in their tracks. They can't believe what they see. The Persians are holding up something so powerful that even the willpower of the pharaoh's infantry crumbles before it. They aren't holding formidable new weapons or impenetrable shields. The Persian soldiers are holding up cats. Cats were sacred in ancient Egyptian culture and prized members of the household. When one died, its human family members would go into mourning. They were even mummified and adorned with precious gemstones so they could enter the afterlife with great ceremony. In fact, cats were so sacred to the Egyptians that killing one was punishable by death. Seeing the sanctified cats in the arms of their enemies, the Egyptian army hesitates. Their archers lower their bows. And then the Persian troops charge into battle. When the dust settles, 50,000 Egyptian soldiers are dead. Pelusium falls, and soon after, Cambyses becomes the first Persian pharaoh of the Egyptian empire. It is the first war, and probably the last, decided by pets. I'm Walter Isaacson, and you're listening to Trailblazers, an original podcast from Dell Technologies. I found this dog. Well, she sort of found me, really. Much maligned by some for his backyard vocalizing. I bet she'd make a great pet. Now the kittens are ready for a little frolic. Clever bird, the parrot. He can actually talk, pronounce words. Sometimes I think you're the only ones who can make me relax without even trying. Pets may not be worshipped as gods anymore, but you could argue that, for many people, they're almost as important. According to a recent survey, two-thirds of American households own a pet, which, collectively, includes 90 million dogs, 94 million cats, and a whopping 160 million fish. And these pets are pampered like no other time in history. In 2019, Americans spent more than $75 billion on their furry and scaled companions. And while our willingness to fork out big bucks on our pets might be a more recent habit, the Battle of Pelusium shows us that humanity's connection to our pets goes back thousands of years. But the pet industry, and even the term pet, 
is a much more recent development. The origin of the term pet as a word um, goes back to the French petit, and it appears in England by the 17th century, uh, and it's used uh, to describe orphan lambs that were raised in the house. Catherine Greer is the author of Pets in America, a history. And gradually it became a term that was adopted to describe animals that were kept for the purposes of private leisure. But the term that was used most commonly, really until well into the 19th century, was favorite. And that really tells you what pet keeping is about. Uh, it's about the human decision to make an animal a favorite, uh, an animal whose life course is influenced or shaped by you and is also uh, dependent upon you for its welfare. Today, dogs and cats are by far the average American's favorite choice of pets. But that wasn't always the case. In the 19th century, where we have some people keeping cage birds, uh, canaries, for example, were a product of the great age of exploration because the, the explorers picked up canaries in the Canary Islands, and they were little finches that could sing well, and then they became this craze. And that's a big reason why birds were the most popular pet in America during the 19th century. At the time, unless you or someone you lived with played music, bird keeping was the only way to have music in the home. I tell people that they were the boombox or the radio of their day. And in fact, cages were designed to be easy to carry from room to room so that you could take along the music with you. And as early as the 1840s, you have the development of specialized stores that become one-stop shopping, especially for bird keeping. Thus, a love of songbirds hatched a mainstay of the American mall, the pet store. By the 1890s, Aided by the rise of the railroad and mail-order trade, full-service pet stores provided pet owners with nearly everything they needed to care for their pets. Store owners and pet traders shipped cats, dogs, songbirds, and goldfish to all corners of the country. But pets weren't just for entertainment and companionship. Some pets were also status symbols. It was common for upper-class women to collect and breed show dogs. Other animal enthusiasts kept rare birds and even monkeys. For some, however, pet keeping offered something else entirely. In the early 20th century, you start to see the development of tropical fish as a hobby. And it requires a lot of expertise. People who keep tropical fish, especially saltwater aquariums, pride themselves on their skill at keeping animals alive, and it's really a hobby that's sort of natural history and that they really are amateur scientists when they have these kinds of aquariums. So, you know, that's a really different kind of pet keeping. But only wealthy pet owners could afford exotic fish and other unusual animals. In fact, most pet owners couldn't even afford to buy pet food from stores. Most people who kept birds grew their own bird seed and those with cats and dogs fed them a homemade stew of leftover dinner scraps. But oddly enough, that changed when the automobile replaced an animal 
most city dwellers interacted with on a daily basis, the urban horse. And there were hundreds of thousands of animals that nobody wanted anymore, really beginning in the 19-teens because of the rise of the Model T and also trucking. Uh, Getting rid of horses in cities was regarded as a public health imperative because of the amount of waste that they left behind. And at that point, factories begin to can horse meat, and they're able to sell that as uh, commercial dog food. Pet stores got into the act by acting as butcher shops in some instances. By the 1960s, a few mom-and-pop stores grew into the industry's first national pet store franchises. But as the industry grew and pet ownership became increasingly common, more and more animals ended up on the streets and in shelters. And by 1973, about 13 million dogs and cats, or 20% of the pet population, were euthanized. This did not sit well with Americans, who saw their pets as members of the family. So in the late 1970s, shelters and veterinary care programs across the country initiated pet sterilization policies. This helped control the pet population and drastically decreased the number of pets who were put down. Today, animal shelters are going through another transformation, but this time it's digital. For the world of sheltering and rescues, the Internet has changed the adoption process significantly. It's allowed them to post a lot of information about animals, so it's enabled them to connect adopters with dogs and cats in particular. Um, so it's, it's really changed access to animals in some profound ways. But even with this newfound access, finding the right pet may be tougher than it sounds. If you are looking to buy a dog, just pick a breed that appeals to you and visit a shelter or pet store. Easy enough, right? Well, not quite. In fact, 10% of dogs adopted from shelters are returned within six months. The reason for giving up on a pet can be cost, circumstance, or in many cases, compatibility. We noticed two major issues that would cause people to return pets to a shelter or to a rescue group or for relationships between people and pets to fail. Elizabeth Holmes is the founder of pet matchmaking service Paws Like Me. One of those issues was a mismatch in terms of between the family and the pet and the other issue was people not really thinking about a pet in terms of a, an individual or in terms of their personality, but thinking of the pet in terms of breed. Before starting Paws Like Me, Holmes ran a pet rescue group in Columbus, Ohio. She noticed that people who showed up to adopt were often so fixated on a dog's breed that they tended to overlook its personality completely. It rarely worked out for them because they had certain expectations based on the breed, but the animal uh, has its own individual personality that, you know, maybe was, was difficult for them to hone into or understand how that might be a good match to their family. And then when it wasn't a good match with the family, the pet would, would get returned to the shelter. Recognizing this problem, Holmes and a group 
decided to start talking to the potential adopters. They spent hours on the phone with them to get to know their own family and living situation. This personalized matchmaking produced much happier results, but it required hours of one-on-one communication, and it wasn't very efficient. And so I started to think about, well, how, how could we bring this to an online system that would do this job for us, that would have the intelligence behind it to be able to consult with people and help them get matched to their ideal pet. Pause Like Me's algorithm assesses pets based on descriptions provided by animal shelters and then compares it against a survey taken by potential adopters to make the perfect match. So essentially what the algorithm is, is um, it is split into four quadrants, um, energy, independence, focus, and confidence. And we assess the pet against those four quadrants and then people's needs against those four quadrants. And that's how we ultimately create the match. And to say that people were interested would be an understatement. Our website crashed after the first month because we didn't anticipate the the number of visitors and the level of interest that we, we ultimately got. Um, I think people were very attracted to the idea that it resembles a dating site, except that uh, instead of creating a match between two people, it creates a match between a, a pet and an individual, a person. More than 5 million people have used Paws Like Me to find a dog or cat. But Paws Like Me isn't the only pet tech company to take advantage of the data posted online by animal shelters across the nation. Adopting a pet can be a joyful experience. But more often than not, shelters are a place of heartbreak. They house many people's beloved lost animals. Research shows that one-third of all pets in the United States will go missing at some point in their life. Eighty percent of these pets are never found. Of those that end up in shelters, a great number will be adopted by someone else or, in the worst case, euthanized. But there's a new piece of biometric technology being used to find all these missing pets. The story of Finding Rover actually began in a coffee shop. John Palomino is the founder of Finding Rover, now called Petco Love Lost. I was sitting uh, in a coffee shop with my wife, and I saw a lost dog poster. And it brought back these terrible memories of this dog we had lost, uh, Harley, um, who was a beautiful black lab who loved to jump fences. And he jumped our fence, and uh, we spent three days looking for him. Um, and the kids crying in the back seat, driving all over you know the neighborhood. Luckily, we got them back. Well, that just triggered something in my head, and I said, wouldn't it be great if they can identify dogs and cats like they identify humans using facial recognition? Palomano had no experience with facial recognition technology, so he partnered with a team of scientists at the University of Utah and got to work. And, as it turns out, developing facial recognition for animals is harder than it sounds. 
it's counterintuitive, but if you think about it, our faces, human faces, are basically the same. Our noses are in the same spot, our ears, our eyes, our chins. Now think of a pug versus a German shepherd. There are so many more variables in an animal's face that there are in a human's face. So it's actually more difficult to identify an animal than it is a human being. So working with the University of Utah uh, that year, um, they figured it out, and which uh, was amazing. When you we saw it working the, for the very first time, we were just in shock. In fact, their algorithm can identify a dog or cat with 98% accuracy. When a pet goes missing, owners upload a head-on image of the dog or cat using PetGo's Love Lost app. That gets compared with images from hundreds of shelters around the country and images users send in if they come across a lost animal. Not only that, the platform can cover a lot more ground than someone posting lost pet posters around their neighborhood. The wonderful thing is it first searches a, uh, your area. It searches an area within a 100 miles of where you've lost it. But you can expand that search throughout the whole country to try to find your pet. With nearly 900 shelter partners and countless app users, Palomino has seen thousands of owners reunited with pets that almost certainly would have been lost forever. But sadly, not every pet who is lost can be found. It's a tragic fact of life that our furry family members live relatively short lives and will one day pass into the great beyond. However, there's a solution for even that problem as well. July 5th, 1996, marked a monumental birthday for both pet lovers and the human race. At the Roslyn Institute in Edinburgh, Scotland, a very special sheep was born. Her name was Dolly, and she was the first mammal to be cloned from adult cells. She made headlines around the world, and today, the very same technology has a slightly new adaptation. So Viagen began really as an attempt to commercialize the technology that came about from the Roslin Institute's successful cloning of Dolly the sheep. Blake Russell is the president of Viagen Pets and Equine. And Viagen really came about as, okay, this is amazing technology, has an impact um, in a number of different places, both in the world of medicine, but also in the world of agriculture. Um, We were working on how do we disseminate um, livestock genetics effectively around the world. And if you think about cloning, uh, that's a really interesting biosecure way to disseminate elite genetics um, to places around the world. So that's where it all began. Viagen has since expanded from agriculture to all sorts of arenas where it might be desirable to clone animals. They're involved in conservation efforts that sound like something out of Jurassic Park. They recently cloned a black-footed ferret, an animal that had previously been thought to be extinct. But for clients with deep pockets who've lost a pet, Viagen offers a way to get them back. The process, at least from the pet owner's point of view, is surprisingly simple. If your pet is still alive, but you think you may want to clone it in the future, you can have your vet take a genetic sample and send it to Viagen's facility in Texas. 
from that small sample that's half of the size of your pinky, um, we're able to grow millions of somatic cells. And each one of those cells has all of the DNA necessary to create an identical twin of your beloved dog. So once that's been successfully grown in our lab, we then can protect and preserve those cells. It's a process they call genetic preservation. Think of it as a bank vault for your pet's DNA. So we we put this in in very high security, high quality storage. It can sit there for decades without degradation. In fact, we've cloned um, horses now that have been stored even before we came along as a company um, that people like the San Diego Zoo had the foresight to uh, preserve a sample 40 years ago, and we've now produced healthy clones from that. It's always best to get a DNA sample while the pet is still alive, but they can be taken up to five days after a pet's death. When the pet owner gives Viagen the go-ahead, that's when the real magic happens. Viagen takes an unfertilized egg from a different animal and removes its DNA, leaving what they call a blank egg. We insert the genetic material that was um, cultured and grown from your dog um, into that egg. And as it starts to grow and develop, we then transfer that into a surrogate. And then um, she will gestate that for 65 days, which is normal gestation for a dog. Um, and then give birth to this identical twin puppy. When it's born, independent scientists do a third-party verification of the puppy's DNA to verify that it's genetically identical to the donor. Then, amazingly enough, a perfect identical twin to your lost pet is hand-delivered to you. But perhaps what's more astonishing than their appearance is how the clone pets behave. And maybe what's more fascinating than the handoff are the calls that we get afterwards um, about, oh my gosh, you wouldn't believe how he does this. And I never, ever dreamed that he might do this just like the original. And the similarities are just pretty remarkable. And the client response makes this so worthwhile. It might seem like cloning your pet is as futuristic as it gets. But if there's one thing that sounds even more far-fetched than bringing your pet back from the dead, it might be talking to them. Professor Khan Slobachikov had a problem. He was studying beetles, looking at the defensive secretions the insects produce, when something unexpected happened. I walked into my lab one day, took a deep breath, and my lungs started filling up with fluid. And I realized that I had gotten allergic to the defensive secretions. He had to find a new animal to study, and fast. And as it happened, there were lots of prairie dogs around my university. And I thought, aha, prairie dogs. Not that much is known about them. How about if I study them? Slobachikov was examining the little mammal's social behavior when he noticed something interesting about the way they express fear. They squeaked. And at the time, everybody thought that a squeak was just a squeak. It was an expression of pure terror. There was nothing else in the squeak. And I started listening to them, and then I started wondering, 
what if a squeak is not just a squeak? What if there's some information in there? And so I started recording these squeaks and setting up experiments to look at the different contexts in which these squeaks occur and found that sure enough, a squeak is not just a squeak, but there's actually a lot of information in it. As it turned out, the prairie dog squeaks comprise an astonishingly complex system of communication. Slobachikov studied them for three decades and was able to translate what seemed more and more like an actual language. They can describe the color of clothes that you're wearing. They can describe your size and shape. They can even describe whether you're carrying a gun or not. So all of this translates into being a very sophisticated language. They actually also can make up new words. So ultimately, what that came down to is that we found that prairie dog language satisfied all of the criteria that linguists said have to be found in an animal communication system for it to be considered language. If prairie dogs, chosen for their proximity to his lab, could exhibit such complex linguistic behavior, Slobachikov bet they weren't unique in the animal kingdom. I think that prairie dogs are nowhere near unique, and I think that language is a much more ubiquitous property of animals and probably has much deeper evolutionary roots than we tend to think of. And that led to his next venture. He is the founder and CEO of Zoolingua, a company that aims to use AI to help us communicate with animals, to quite literally speak their language. Why is this important? Well, as it turns out, our dogs are speaking to us all the time. We're just not listening to them properly. Even though most people think that they understand their dog, 80% of them are wrong. They don't. As a result of this misunderstanding, this leads to behavioral problems on the part of the dog, and the dog often ends up in a shelter because of these behavioral problems, which can be traced back to communication problems. So I thought, okay, if we can communicate somehow with dogs, then this might lead people to have a, a much greater appreciation of their dog's needs. Zoolingua is currently working on an app to translate what dogs are trying to tell us through barking and body language into a message that a human can understand. Users will use the app to film a short video of their dog, which is then uploaded to the cloud where a machine learning-powered algorithm will decode it. Something like, I'm hungry, please feed me. Or, I'm bored, can we go for a walk? Or, I'm afraid of the postman. Or, I'm afraid of you. And things like that. And as we get more and more data, we can become much more sophisticated in terms of decoding what the dog is actually trying to convey to the people. Slobachikov hopes Zoolingua will be up and running within a few years. When it is, the app will be capable of one-way dog-to-human communication. And once they've tackled dogs, they're planning on moving to cats and then possibly even horses, cows, sheep, and pigs. The 
ultimate long-term goal and my vision for all of this is to show people that animals are sentient thinking beings and we need to take better care of our relationship with animals. Pets are an integral part of the human experience. Evidence indicates we've been keeping cats for more than 9,000 years. And in 2018, archaeologists unearthed the remains of a 14,000-year-old prehistoric puppy. We love our animals, and as far as we can tell, they love us too. The technology we've developed to adopt, relocate, resurrect, and communicate with them is proof that the value of their companionship is immeasurable. They say that a dog is man's best friend. But I guess that all depends on what pet you keep. Whether it's tropical fish, an exotic bird, a sassy tabby, or a lovable mutt, there's no bond quite like the one between you and your pet. I'm Walter Isaacson, and you've been listening to Trailblazers, an original podcast from Dell Technologies. For more information about the guests on today's show, please visit DellTechnologies.com slash Trailblazers. Thanks for listening. <laughs>